Hi, everybody. Welcome to Pairs Well With, the new integral stage series of conversations that pair well with other discussions. In this case, Brendan Graham Dempsey, the artist, writer, and theorist who composed the book Emergentism, pairs well with the ludicrous recent episode of the integral stage in which we interviewed Adia Hanzi, the pseudonymous co-author of Brendan's new volume, and that interview was in puppet form leading to a lot of hilarity and a lot of half-formed figuring out of what we were doing. And we'd like to supplement that discussion with a less performative, more straightforward chat with our friend Brendan about his new book. Hi, Brendan. Hey, Layman. Thanks. Appreciate it. So what I want to do is a more casual but deeper exploration of the themes that Adia Hanzi and I covered the other day. But let's segue into that by touching on it. Like, how did you feel about that discussion? It was obviously fun. People have enjoyed it. It's pretty unique. It's also silly and amateurish and possibly not what you want as the primary representative of what is a very sincere and thoughtful volume. So how did it strike you and how do you feel about it now in retrospect? So that's that's a good framing. I I, uh, I enjoyed it very much, but it was there's multiple levels to this, you know, in in dealing with pseudonymous characters, uh, which has been an element of my work for a long time, there's the question then that I think Hansi actually also had to negotiate of how you then do interviews, conversations in pseudonymous form. So, uh, you know, for example, is someone talking to Hansi or are they talking to Daniel Gortz and, and that sort of thing? So you have to kind of figure those things out. And um, I'd had a couple ideas of how Adia Adia Hansi might show up in the world. I initially bought a wig and some uh, ridiculous kind of uh, guru clothing, and I tried that out, but it it didn't quite work. I'm a I've always been a a fan of puppets, going back to my early youth, and then I hit on that idea as pen- potential possibility. And um, there are pros and cons to it. I mean, that conversation was sort of trying to figure out that character in the moment. And I think by the end, we got to something kind of interesting and eccentric and fun. But as you say, I don't think it necessarily matches the, the the sincerity that's also in the mix, if that makes sense, right? So there's this ironic, sincere component. But if you lean, lean too far into one direction, then it's very easy for that to kind of take over the entire conversation. And so being Brennan and Graham Dempsey also allows me to come at these from a more direct, sincere, uh, earnest sort of way. Um, and also to be able to engage in these uh, questions a bit more intentionally um, so that I don't have to juggle all of the theatrics as well as, um, you know, character development and and content at the same time. So anyway, I'm not sure if uh, Adia Hanzi, the puppet, will be reappearing uh, or not. Um, or, you know, Adia Hanzi is a shapeshifter and goes through many forms and versions of self. So there may be a, a different Adia Hanzi in the future than than I'm even familiar with uh, that that emerges. So we'll see. But I appreciate this opportunity to also speak to some of the content of the book uh, as Brendan Graham Dempsey, because Adia Hanzi is a bit of a mic hog and uh, you know really takes up the, uh, the the oxygen in the room. Okay, let's uh, let's zoom way out. What is this book about? What what are you hoping it accomplishes for readers? This book is about trying to instantiate what has been discussed a lot in the field. And by the field, I guess I mean the sort of metamodern liminal web ecosystem, which at this point has kind of the groundwork has been laid, um, uh, I think, pretty securely. We have some good foundations to speak about what this project is. 
you'd asked Adi Hanzi about uh, you know why the why the, the frequent mentioning and reference to Jamie Wheel's work is he reinventing the wheel? And I think that the more important point is that it's really helpful at this juncture to be able to look to different authors who have already put ideas into the world that you no longer have to make the case as it as it were to like um justify the 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 audacious notion of reinventing religion reconstructing religion because a lot of that groundwork has been laid by folks like Wheel and Verveke, Jordan Hall, the conversations you and I have had, the conversations you and I have had with Verveke. Um, and of course, Verveke is drawing on other people. So I feel like there's sort of a, there's some foundations that have been laid there. And there's this generally recognized concern, issue, endeavor, project to reimagine religion in light of uh, the critiques of the modern project and the postmodern deconstructionist project. How do we how do we do what religions used to do now that we're no longer working with a two worlds mythology? Now that we are working with a, a very different cosmological map and understanding of causality and and you know all the insights of of modern science and rational thinking. And so you know people like Verveke have talked about this, and I feel like people are grokking that they're getting it. Um, it's been presented so that it doesn't sound as scary as, uh, you know, some cult leader trying to invent a religion to, to uh, you know, milk the masses or whatever. So I think people are, are getting it, right? And there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of what would this look like? How would it scale? You know, like there's a design project underway. But I wanted to kind of attempt that, as it were, um, and say, all right, well, here's how I think it could work. Here's how I think it would look. And not just talk about the mechanics of how it might work, but actually what it looks like. Um, what's the content? So that's a big aspect of it. Um, at the same time, despite there being this sort of foundation that's out there around you know, these sorts of projects of the religion that's not a religion and meeting 3.0 and that sort of thing, I also think that those other projects are missing important ingredients. I mean, they focus on things that are crucial, but they tend to focus more on uh, practice and ecologies of practice and the sorts of activities um, and uh, and ritual and kind of, um, yeah, I, to, yeah, practices basically is the focus, right? So Wheel is talking a lot about, you know, the alchemical toolkit you can use and Verveke is talking a lot about these ecologies of practice. And, and the issue of narrative, I think, tends to get lost. I think people are a bit wary of narrative. And I guess I see this work in some ways as being a contribution in that domain, especially. If there's something kind of unique about emergentism, it's that it does have a narrative to it. And I think that that's really important because in the Western context that we find ourselves in, very influenced by Judeo-Christian religion and theology, narrative and myth uh, are really important. Of course, propositional claims and creedal claims are important in, in, well, in all forms of Christianity, but increasingly in sort of um, uh, Protestant forms. But we live in that milieu, you know, like uh, we don't live in a in a society that's coming from a, a an Eastern tradition where it's more about meditation practice. It's more about cultivating interiority. And while, don't get me wrong, those things are very important in what I'm talking about as well, I think that if we focus on them without including some of that mythos as well, then we're missing something kind of crucial there. So 
emergentism tries to fill that gap, I think, a bit with a a grand narrative. Uh, and it's a grand narrative that is informed by our, our best big history science and uh, complexity science um, and tries to present an understanding of the world uh, that has a grand narrative kind of component to it, a meta-narratological component that's also psychologically and spiritually fulfilling. And so I think if there's something unique going on there, that's a part of it. So yeah, in sum, what is this book about? It's an attempt to articulate a religion that's not a religion with a strong focus on the grand narrative of meta-modernity, um, as I see it, but certainly integrated and informed by other theorists about meta-modernity and their notions of these sorts of grand narrative contexts. So yeah, I present the kind of evidence for that, evidence for the narrative, evidence for um, this complexification story of the universe. And then I kind of transpose that into the you know, mythological religious register through myth and through symbol um, to see if something like that could be, could work. Right. And I think that by doing it that way, I hope that we can also avoid a lot of the pitfalls of myth, which have tended to be, well, that myth becomes divorced from reality, right? That it becomes stories about things that then people can take literally, and then you get kind of further and further from being grounded in truth. But if you're using the stories that are coming out of uh, complexity science and big history, then you're sort of a lot more grounded. And if you can find something there that, again, kind of speaks to the soul and is... Um, draws out that sense of awe and wonder and reverence, I think you've got a recipe for something that could work uh, mythologically as a religion that's not a religion. Yeah, I feel like there's uh, there's two kind of unique features about this book. And one of them is one of them is the narrativization that and the conscious participation in that, because people who have done big picture dynamic evolving world models have often created a kind of mythic sensibility around those models, but somewhat inadvertently, and that opens it up to certain critiques. This is a very conscious and intentional engagement with that aspect of it. And that aspect is being, I think, pointed to by a lot of people who have entered the field in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, there's a lot of where does ceremony and ritual and narrative and mythos and poetry go, but we maybe haven't clarified that well enough so far. And there's also an element of, of update because there were the, let's say, early modern big picture evolutionary theorists, right? mm -hmm. Hegel to Deschardins. And then there are the late 20th century models, and we're still wrestling with those ones. And then there's been a, a crop of additional thinkers since then. They've either presented their own models or presented their critiques of the inherited models. So I think this book does a good job of um, summarizing an up-to-date version of where we are in this project. But my curiosity, or one of my curiosities, is around what does it do for you? Like, uh, who, who is Brendan on the other side writing this? What, uh, what did it accomplish for your interiority? Yeah, I mean, hmm. I've been, I've been wrestling with these questions for, you know, gosh, I guess, I guess at this point, 15 years, at least a decade, and one of the things that it did for me is sort of provide a culmination to this point of my thinking around a lot of this. After I kind of left my biblical studies and seminarian kind of track and um, moved into the realm of aesthetics and wrote this poem about the death of God, 
by the end of all that, about four years after starting that project and and then finishing it, um, I'd, I'd come to a lot of promising leads. You know, I felt like I'd worked myself to certain conclusions or at least the beginnings of conclusions. And they gestured towards evolution. They gestured towards dynamism, you know, change in the divine, the evolving of the divine, the participation in the life of the divine. So I personally had moved from a kind of spiritual journey in my youth that was very, you know, God is up there, out there, what have you, transcendent, and uh, and very kind of in the traditional mode. And by the end of my, you know, well, let's say early 20s, I was definitely in a, in a point where that model could no longer work. Um, but I saw that there was this need for a new God image, a new God concept. And it was one that changed by means of human participation um, because God was in culture in some fascinating way. Um, and yet at the same time, in you know, reading religious sociology and people like Durkheim and everything, God, in a sense, was culture. God was coming out of culture. Um, God was also just a symbol. Uh, God was also a symbol for the thing beyond all symbols. So there was a lot of ideas there that were that were nascent. And um, so over the next 10 years, you know, doing a lot of reading and, you know, doing my master's and whatnot, uh, built up a lot more um, leads around all this. And then of course, finding integral theory and getting into, and then finally really getting into some of these evolutionary thinkers like Deschardins, like Hegel, all that was coming together, but it felt like it needed, um, yeah, a very contemporary grounding in the, in, in, in the best that we could come up with about our story of reality as well. Um, so then filling in all that with the complexity science and everything, it kind of just meshed, it, it converged and it came together. Um, and so at this point, I feel like it was an attempt to put all of that together into a coherent formulation. Um, it's kind of the distillation of, as, as I said, maybe 10 or 15 years of thinking about these ideas. At the same time, though, I think why I was able to write it so quickly is because my concern was just to get the ideas out. I wasn't really too you know, concerned with having them polished or even defensible in their greatest depth of you know, evidentiary support or whatever. It was just sort of, how can I express this idea in the simplest way? And when I started it, I thought the book would be a, around 100 pages. Um, but then it just I realized that there kept, needed to be more and more and more of it. So um, it kind of capped it around 300. But still, I thought, all right, this is kind of the simplest expression I can put out there into the world of this uh, set of ideas. And um, so that's another thing that I think it, it helped do, because um, hopefully it's the most kind of um, uh, approachable, accessible version of, of these ideas. And one of the things I'd like to do now is really fill out the details. And so I've started working on something that'll be a lot longer and more in depth and everything. Um, but for me, yeah, it's been the culmination of that kind of spiritual journey up to this point. Um, going back to the God poem that I wrote of sort of realizing this future, this, this endeavor of creating a new religious framework if only for myself, but hopefully in a way that other people could resonate with and find meaningful and build community around. Um, because that's also part of it too, is, you know, this is my version, but you know, it's, it's part of what I see as a constructive co-creative act. So, uh, you know, we're all doing versions of this, I think. And, and that's, I think in some ways, what the kind of meta theoretical projects that people are engaged in are, are in some ways about. It's kind of a grand religious project uh, at its core in the sense of trying to understand reality and its at its 
you know, in its greatest depth and at at the sort of widest scope. So, yeah. I can imagine the people who are out there right now who thought this book was long and in-depth, shuddering with <laughs> apprehension at the possibility of a longer, more in-depth treatment. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I mean I have some notes going, so um, they're not done yet, but they they do start to fill in some of the the, the back there. I I don't know. There's something for me. I think this is probably something that other meta theorists and and uh, folks in this field get. But there's a desire to be comprehensive, right? You want to sort of enfold the the as much of the richness and the depth of reality as possible, um, and so. Another part for me is that I feel like these ideas should work at the greatest level of resolution, right? So it's one thing if someone just comes out of the gate and they're like, hey, you know, God's evolving and we're heading towards God consciousness. And people, some people will be like, hey, that's great. That sounds wonderful. But I want to be like, well, let me tell you why and how all this is unfolding using, you know, thermodynamic theory and blah, 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 blah. And for me, that's when it starts, you can really sink in and it it becomes a very a grand scope. And actually one of the ways I've been wrestling with, and I haven't quite figured out exactly how to do this yet is to present this material holonically, right. At levels of increasing resolution, quite literally. So you can zoom in. And so maybe level one is sort of like, you know, yes, culture and the self evolve in mirroring ways. And some people, again, will be like, oh, okay, that works for me. I believe you. Next. Other people will be like, wait a second, that's a tall claim. So you're going to zoom in on that and find something in, in there that it's like, oh, this is, you know, here are the models of, you know, uh, ontogenetic development. And here are, you know, various forms of evolutionary the- uh, cultural theory and blah, blah, blah. And you can zoom in on that and then you get quotes and everything. So like that to me, that richness, that depth is important. And, um, this book was an attempt to just do the outlines, the contours of it, but there's a part of me that wants to bring all of that richness out. And uh, again, I don't know, maybe it doesn't serve a function. Maybe it's actually kind of just a kind of navel gazing or something. Maybe it doesn't uh, serve a purpose in a, an existential moment where we're dealing with these great catastrophic risks and everything to have some great tome that gets into all the details about these sorts of things. There's potentially, I mean, you know, you could level a critique that we need other forms of engagement that would be more valuable. Um, and I think that that's true too. So I'm always wrestling with that. I'm not sure exactly what what the world needs more. Do we need Do we need to get all the scientists and intellectuals on board with this grand narrative to kind of, you know, be top-down ambassadors for a sense of meaning? Um, Or do we need to reach out to, you know, the quote-unquote man on the street and be able to just provide an image of the world that's compelling and meaningful and significant? Um, I think the answer is both, but right, it's like, uh, who's going to do that? We need to kind of be working at all these different levels, and uh, I'm often torn in those different directions, but... um, ultimately passion kind of decides in the end and i feel called to do this sort of deep dive approach there's a you mentioned the idea that the the field is full of uh injunctions to practice (laughs) rather than coherent narrative building and i certainly fall into that category a lot of the time i'm skeptical about narratives and i I feel like to what degree they exist they might be emergent side effects of a life of practice but there's Mm. also this question about narrative itself as practice under certain Mm. conditions because one of the things you seem to bring up is this sense that the particular phrasing and arrangements of the thought structures 
uh, then also by extension, ritual and community structures that are involved in, in our consciousness and in our social contracts that the particular shapes either do or do not activate the passions of human beings in particular ways, right? And you come out of a religious background where I think that's one of the things people are doing are gravitating around memes that provide them with moments of practice, of participatory contemplative arousal of some mm. kind. And mm. so you're looking for versions of the meta theories and meta meta theories that can provide some of that. And mm -hmm. so my curiosity there is how do you know when you found a piece that might be able to do that, you know, for you, maybe for the scientists, maybe for the man in the street. And when you found one, how do you engage with it in a way that, you know, how does that become the lighting up? Hmm. So lots of aspects to that. And I want to, I want to not miss any of them. A couple things that came to mind though, are when I think about some of the voices that have entered into the public discourse that have had uh, the biggest impact um, at kind of arousing the spiritual and religious uh, sensibility of of the population, and, and I guess in this case, by the population, I tend to mean Western populations and maybe America, but certainly I think uh, America, Europe, Canada. I think of people like Joseph Campbell. I think of people like, well, you can go back even further to Carl Jung, uh, but Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and Jordan Peterson. Now, I'm not saying all these people were right about everything, but they struck a nerve. They struck a chord with, with people. And what they all have in common, though, is that they de were defenders of myth, right? You know, the power of myth and the, the, the deep truths of myth and recognizing uh, the real uh, in, in the mythological. There's something there that clearly resonates with people. And I think when you even look at it developmentally, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we get to uh, abstraction through storytelling. And storytelling is so vital uh, at every aspect of our being about constructing our own narratives of our egos to, you know, the stories we tell collectively. There's sort of a, at this point, it's not even a cottage industry. It's sort of a, it's a industrial industry of, uh, of, of writers and thinkers and voices who keep trying to tell us how important stories are. And it kind of becomes a bit of a trope at a certain point, but it's also true. I think it's, I think it really is. It's something that is really important. And so for missing the story from these endeavors to, uh, you know, uh, arouse that religious impulse again and to get people spiritually um, and ethically engaged uh, with, with wisdom and with, uh, and with practice too, then we're missing something crucial. I mean, even, even the Buddhist practices are framed by, you know, the life of the Buddha and are often put in that mythological narrative to sort of like, you know, to such that these stories become exemplary and lodge in your mind and give context to a lot of what these practices are about. So I just want to kind of make that point. And so I feel like, yeah, I, I think that to, to reemphasize, I think that we, we as a field um, this meta modern ecosystem, I think a lot because of our demographics don't focus as much on the story component. Um, you know, of course, Wilbur uh, practicing Buddhist for of course is uh, uh, practicing um, uh, 
well, he's a meditation teacher and, and uh, I believe he does Tai Chi as well. And wheel of course, coming out of the integral scene, there's a, I mean, and many others, right. There's, there's a, a, a kind of presumed context within uh, Eastern esotericism, I would say is sort of the, really the bread and butter of a lot of the, the spiritual material that comes out of the scene. Um, and you have a few others. Uh, uh, Paul Smith has done some interesting work with integral Christianity, but on the whole, I feel like there's not there's not a lot that sort of approached the Western Judeo-Christian you know mythological tradition from these angles. And given the fact that that orientation constitutes the majority of people in the West, like we're missing out, we're missing a crucial kind of uh, outreach component to society if we're just kind of presuming that people want to meditate and people want to do this and that because right if you don't have the story to ground that it it uh it we need to make those points of contact and again to reiterate i'm not at all saying that those practices aren't crucial you know they are and you find them in the western judeo christian tradition as well in contemplative practices and mysticism so but making that connection at least has to happen anyway point number 1 to your more direct question of like, how do you know when you found something that excites you? I would just say there's a, there, I mean, that's, that's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to this because one of the things I think that's really important about material that, that narrative material that can kind of excite our religious sensibility, I think it ties the individual to a collective kind of holistic frame of reality in a way that says that you are part of something much bigger than yourself, but not in a way that's, that renders you negligible or, uh, you know, just a small little dot, you know, on a little dot in space, but that somehow your existence is interwoven into the fabric of reality. And I think that religions in general accomplish that sensibility from different angles and in different ways. Um, in many ways, the mystical experience is the first person realization of that uh, kind of experientially, that that you are the cosmos, that the, the, the very universe is, is what you are, and that the, the very distinction between you and other things disappears, and that that, that kind of comes together, that unitive experience expressed narrative narratologically though i think that there's a sense that you matter to the universe that you are participating in something that that makes your life have a purpose i was just listening to uh verveke and hall talking to jim rutt about meaning in life versus meaning of life and they were sort of emphatically stressing that we should be focusing on meaning in life rather than meaning of life. But again, I feel like that's a very, that's a, so I, I kind of part ways. I, I, I would disagree with that characterization. I think that there's something certainly in, I tend to kind of equate it or characterize the Western Judeo-Christian mind this way, that it, it wants a meaning of life. And if you just say, well, there is no meaning of life, you can just find meaning in life. I think the immediate reaction people will have to that is disappointment, <laughs> you know, oh, all right, I guess, I guess my relationships are meaningful and this and that, but like, there isn't really any meaning to this. Um, and I'm saying, you know, there are deeper ways to understand why that might be a simplistic missing of the point. And I do think Verveke and Hall are right to get at the point that like, we do need meaning in life. And that if we too simplistically look for a meaning of life, 
we're going to be doing our religion in a very superficial way, et cetera, et cetera. So their, their basic points are taken. But I do think that there's a lingering sense of, I want a meaning of life. I want, I want this to be collectively, holistically, something that has some, some end, some goal, some purpose. And this is where teleology, I think, comes in. Um, and, you know, it's a bit of a dirty word, but I think that one of the exciting things for me, one of the things that clicked about discovering uh, all this stuff in the complexity sciences is that teleology actually is a part of reality, that we can't kind of dispense with notions of teleology completely. Otherwise, we won't be able to understand emergent phenomena. We won't be able to understand complex systems. Um, and so teleology has had some something of a comeback, you know, in the last 30 years, as an explanatory aspect of reality. And then I get excited. Then that, then my kind of, you know, like, oh, this is cool. So reality itself has an, uh, an inherent sense of moving towards things or for things. Um, and then that's, that's a sign for me that, that something is speaking uh, to my soul because I do want a meaning for things and I do want there to be a purpose to things. Um, so that, that's part of the basis then of of why this particular material i think fulfills a function that other scientific articulations of reality have hitherto failed to achieve it became sort of dogmatically the case that there wasn't a purpose that there is no telos uh in sort of modern rationalistic scientific contexts for understanding reality and I think a, a big reason for that was because people in those contexts were trying very hard to distinguish themselves from the religious traditionalists and the fundamentalists who had a more kind of crude notion of, you know, the two worlds mythology and everything. So, yeah, I, I think that being able to articulate meaning, direction, purpose in naturalistic ways um, that eschews simple kind of two worlds mythology thinking and yet is grounded in scientific, rational, uh, empirical evidence. That's exciting to me. And then I start feeling like here, religion and science can start to come back together again. And then it's just a matter of telling that story, which isn't now the story of gods or prophets per se. It's the story of the universe. And, uh, and again, then you're situated in the story. And you're part of that story. And so it fulfills, I think, that that religious function of, of feeling a sense of significance in your own existence. So that would be one way to answer that question. Yeah, I appreciate the people who are trying to make, in a way, the classic existential distinction between meaning of life and meaning in life. Mm. But it's not really a clean distinction because the meaning of life is something looking for the meaning of life, caring about it, possibly even finding it. Those are procedures you perform in life. That may be mm. one of the privileged forms of meaning in life is to work on the meaning of life. Mm. Um, like objectively say Telos may well have a role to play in understanding how the cosmos actually operates, but certainly inwardly Telos and strong mythic forms, they share this quality of, bringing together too many things for us to quickly compute. Mm. And when they do that well, in my way of thinking, where they're producing or evoking a coherent excess, there's a too muchness there. So they're, they're basic structural forms for locating a too muchness that we've successfully 
found through our manipulation of the data of our experience. So to me, um, the meaning of life is, is one of the one of the basic and maybe even prioritized ways of succeeding in organizing the meaning in life. And the proof mm. of that success is structures that contain too much, either because mm. many things converge in them or because they indicate too many variations of their own patterns for us to track. So I'm intrigued by that. But when I come to the concept of too much, uh, it makes me curious about pathos. You know, I wrote this uh, at the end of my. Uh, blurb on Emerge about your book. Mm -hmm. I commented that you've got this journey from logos to mythos to religio, taking the scientific worldview as it currently stands and poeticizing it and setting it up to serve a religious function. Mm -hmm. But where's the pathos? Mm -hmm. What you know, and I, act, I asked Adia Hanzi about logos, mythos, and religio. So those have been defined. Let's take yeah. that as given. What is pathos and where does pathos play a role in, in this vision that you've got? couple things up front you know i as a as an, a former philologist right and a lover of the greek language you know there are many oses out there um and uh so why we privilege a couple as being fundamental is worth investigation on its on its own right there's no you know outside the context of a really good argument for why these things are fundamental um there's nothing sort of glaringly obvious about ah yes mythos or logos are you know deep the deepest realities and pathos is one of them so i just want to i want to mention that which isn't to say that pathos isn't really important um but the presumption that it needs to be a module in some kind of metaphysics uh is a presumption you know and uh and the only thing that I think really grounds that in a very solid way is just the reality of pathos, right? I'll say pathos because it comes more naturally to me, but you know, pathos, pathos. It's uh it's something that that presents itself to us unavoidably, right? Um, suffering, pain, sadness, despair, the dark uh aspects of reality. These are things that just are, and we don't choose them obviously we uh they they confront us so i think to the degree that we can speak about pathos as being a reality that at least needs to be confronted is is based in that but the notion that pathos is somehow kind of almost like a platonic ideal that like we need to like do service to is kind of where i part ways a little bit with sort of the the dark renaissance folks and the um because my view of the pathos let me see if i can also i think that we should try to avoid a bit of ambivalence about the word pathos and what it can mean because pathos can mean suffering in the sense of you know just despair uh of hell but pathos can also be the very thing that invigorates, you know, great poetry, let's say, right? You know, if you listen to some really juicy, uh, you know, love songs or some songs of woe and, and sadness, right? There's there's something that art is also deeply rooted in the in the in the uh the pathic, I guess you could say. 
And so there it has kind of a positive valence, right? We wouldn't have some of the excruciating beauty of like, you know, the Zainzucht of, of Tristan and Isolde if we didn't have pathos, right? Um, and so I want to somewhat separate those two um, because it's different to, I, I don't think that the desire to reduce suffering should then lead inexplicable or inextricably to some conclusion that we should get rid of art <laughs> if that if that makes sense and i'm probably getting way too abstract here for it for a moment so let me come back down to earth and just deal with with pathos as suffering um pathos is is real it's 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 a it's a perpetual aspect of our reality the way that i look at pathos though is that it is the thing that we should be trying to ameliorate um, it is what we are emerging out of in some ways as we complexify. Um, though even that's not quite the way to put it because as we complexify, our ability to suffer increases <laughs> um, because of our sensitivity and because of our deepened sense of the ability to abstract and conceptualize our own existence that then becomes heightened. Uh, so, so pathos in that sense can increase as complexification increases, but ultimately pathos um, as, as suffering is what we should be trying to correct for. Um, you know, I talk a little bit towards the end of the discussion of practices on the notion of paradise engineering. Um, I think that the very notion that we could realize God consciousness in the world would suggest that um, we've got we've moved as far away from just meaningless suffering as possible and that we've moved as close as we could possibly get at least in a continually iterative way and a you know recursive well, just endlessly towards a limit of increasing goodness uh delight grace beatitude right um and so so that's how i figure pathos in you know, I'm not a dark renaissanceer. I'm not going to include pathos as a section of my religion that we should somehow try to cultivate pathos, right? But I do think we need to negotiate it. I think we need to navigate pathos. And I think we need to use it as our as our kind of thermometer for our success in terms of our own ethics. You know, how much are we causing others to suffer? How much are we causing, how much are we suffering? The idea would be that as we develop and complexify, we will cause less suffering and we will experience less suffering. So that's my take on pathos. And again, these issues then become you know deeper once you start digging into the potential meanings of pathos and how pathos might relate to other good things of the beauty of art, for example, and that sort of stuff. But that might be a bit too far afield of these things. And I think it, ultimately it comes down to a kind of equivocation. Yeah, uh, that that there's a lot that gets wrapped up in that word. And it also raises some legitimate philosophical questions. You know, do we need suffering to have things like beauty? Do we need suffering to have joy even? You know, so these these are important questions, but I also, and I'm happy to get into them, but I don't know if, if uh, I don't think there are many folks out there who would think, ah, yes, I know what religion needs more of, suffering. You know, like, let's build that more into the system. Well, I think it's it's fair to say that for most people, uh, the amelioration of suffering <laughs> is the primary goal, uh, and that we probably have enough of it in our lives that we don't need to have it hit us over the head in order to appreciate it. 
but I think there is something interesting about the sense of the excessive nature of suffering and the excessive nature of joy, of mm. of embodied too muchness that we can't handle mm. and what we do with that, both in terms of our practice, like in terms of becoming and evolving in a way that uh, doesn't cultivate pathos, but leans into it so that we can become the organizer of the discontinuity that it presents mm. to us emotionally. And then similarly at the narrative and model making level, that, I mean, the argument from psychoanalysis, say, would be that there's a range of experiences that we might call the traumatic real in a Lacanian vein, that there's a sense of intolerable vital intensities that we automatically try to foreclose from our experience and then subsequently foreclose from our model making. Mm. And that if we're not really um, kind of proactively in search of these qualities, we will end up with a distorted model because our automatic animal disposition is to minimize them and then also minimize them in the thought systems we generate. Yeah, no. And I think that that's, that's, very fair. I think that in meta, like if I take, say, Hansi Freinach's model, right, there's the whole states uh, aspect of development, and there's literally hell is on the map. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's there. I think that some of us have experienced it more than others. I I think that there is even value to experiencing those states. But at the same time, there's also a sense that they're not things to just choose to wallow or swim in that psychic valence has a valence for a reason. And there's a message there. There's a bit of a kind of, you know, cue you can take from psychedelics of you get the message and then you hang up the phone. It's like, okay, you know, you, 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 you swim, you wallow in the abyss, you get what that, you get the taste for that. Okay. Is that something you're going to keep exploring, keep digging into, trying to uncover every rock of, of woe that you possibly can um, in order to what probe the depths of suffering? I wouldn't necessarily characterize that as wisdom. I would say that uh, there's a kind of morbid curiosity uh, that we can justify uh, in various ways. And I know that that's not what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying is that we need to take into account the full uh, scope of experience. But one of the things that strikes me as very important about some of these models and about some of this way of thinking is that ultimately you do find your footing in a in an, a normativity of being able to say, mm, this is better than this. This is this is not good and this is good. Um, you're not doing it in a naive way of believing in some kind of you know, let's just say moral facts or ontological realities of these sorts of things, but you are able to reground a sense of normativity. And at that point, I, I fail to see the uh, usefulness of further mapping the depths of sorrow and nihilism and despair, other than ironically, a pathology, <laughs> you know, um, that we can get stuck in these zones, we can almost get addicted to them. It's like when you get you get broken up with, and then you just turn on the sad music. And then you're just in a space, you're in a zone. But you've got to get yourself out of that morass if you're going to, otherwise, you're just going to stay there. And there can be something, yeah, I think a bit 
uh, naysaying to reality hidden in this notion of we need to say yes to the full depths of our suffering. There was one more thing I was going to say about that, but it escapes me. Yeah, I, um, I've never used these terms before, but I guess I think in terms of primary and secondary pathos, right? So that a lot of the wallowing, a lot of the experiencing we normally associate with suffering is a way of avoiding the kind of embodied and felt cognitive dissonance that underlies it. Like we're, mm. we're happy enough, so to speak, to spend time feeling bad. But what we don't like to do is touch the actual nub of dissonance within us that the bad mm. feeling is a reaction to. Um, I, I would say, that aside. Go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, just two, two more quick thoughts. One is, I think that if you are to say we should touch the nub, <laughs> that you have to have a why. And the why is probably going to be justified by, well, because you'll heal it or you'll make it better, right? So there is still this orientation towards the good yes. um, rather than the pathic for its own sake. The other thing I just want to add in as a caveat is I'm also definitely not advocating some kind of Nietzschean last man, right? Where we just, oh, the, you know, if we all just become like the the people in Wally uh, who have, you know, just intravenously set up our opiates coming in and we're just kind of, you know, pleasure is the only thing and that sort of thing. No, I think that pathos as a, a means for struggle is really important, right? That, that there's something about uh, struggling that is inherent to development, and that that is experienced as a kind of negative valence uh, because you're pushing and you're you're growing, and so that is very important. But there, I would almost call that more the erotic, the the eros. You know, that's the the and and you know these things do, of course, in both healthy and pathological ways, start to become conflated in in, in all sorts of manners. But you know, there there is the like and I talk about this in the book, but like vitality and the strength and the will to power, these are all good things, but they're just rooted in a cruder, uh, you know, level of our being than, than our other, you know, proclivities. So they shouldn't be negated. They just need to be integrated in a healthy way. Um, so I'm all for, for movement and strength and vigor and, and becoming anti-fragile and, and all of that. I think that that's vital, uh, literally, um, but, uh, but I, I think that I frame it differently than just saying we need pathos. Uh, you know, the journey of this book, Logos, Mythos, Religio, uh, opens up an interesting question because a reader might assume that maybe you have some religio ideas in mind already and you're uh, rationalizing it by selecting certain elements of the contemporary logos that justify that narrative. But you might also say, well, it begins in the logos. Actually, if you examine the way the logos is today, uh, way downstream of the beginning of the initial project of scientific analytic deconstruction of reality, which looked very mechanistic at first, but as it kept going, it kept discovering things that were much more, uh, let's say, right-brained in their description of nature. So if we look at the logos, it makes sense to say, you know, there's almost a momentum in it that's suggesting its own poeticization, its own mythologization. And I want to ask you when you're not, um, when your brain isn't split between you and a puppet, what is the scientific worldview today? What, what is the logos? It's not the 19th century logos. What's your sense of where we are scientifically? Yeah, I, this is actually a question I feel Adi Hansi rather botched, um, you know, so <laughs> I'm glad to get another chance at this one. You know, these distinctions 
are just that they're distinctions, right? But if the universe is a holistic totality, then these distinctions are at some level artificial. They're they're condescensions to different modalities and ways of approaching the universe that we have to make sense of it. So I agree that at a higher level of analysis, the logos is going to bleed into, uh, you know, the mythic. We could say because those distinctions fall apart and that what reality reveals of itself is going to include the mythic the you know religious the pathos and all that it's all in the mix it's just a matter i mean this is again what what map makers and folks are trying to do is is try to get to those higher levels to see how these things do come together in unified ways to make sense of the whole so that's one framing i would throw out there and a really interesting one because i'd i'd like to I'd like to talk about that more, but I also don't want to not address the second part of that. Um, so I'll address the second part of that and see if maybe I'll come back to it if I remember. The second part is what does the logos look like today? I think that one of the crucial things about metamodernism and metamodernity, when properly grasped, is that we need to integrate the postmodern critiques of things. And I think we also maybe do a disservice to the whole postmodern paradigm and episteme if we only frame it through the level of critique, because it's a lot more than that. I mean, depending on what aspect of it you, you want to focus on, that postmodern, that green, that 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 stage is also about systems. It's about systemic thinking. It's about finding networks and contexts. It's about probing to the margins. It's about uh, kind of intrepidly willing to explore a lot of these domains that were hitherto considered out of bounds or even just uncharted. It's about... Anyway, so I could go on and on and talk about what it's about, but what I'm getting at is that the Logos today takes that in. It takes that into account so that you know, when we're talking about development or we're talking about the world, uh, the universe and how it's composed, that sort of a thing, our frameworks now are enriched by systems thinking, by network thinking, by contextual thinking, by relativistic thinking, by the loss of foundationalism, right? It's really interesting, you know, my own spiritual journey when I started getting abutting a these these stages of thinking about relativism and contextuality and that sort of a thing, uh, you do experience a vertigo because you lose your orientation. You, you lose your, 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 your map such as you've made it because you were working on a fun foundationless model. And then all that drops away and then you're kind of terrified and you're in the void and the abyss and all that. And however, you get past that, ideally, unless you're going to dig down into that pathos and just explore it. Um, you get past that to be able to reorient yourself in terms of relativity. Um, and that's deeply important, I think, right? Because then you, you've got a deeper sense of reality. Um, and, you know, for example, Piaget talks about the circle of the sciences, um, which is a great sort of anti-foundationalist way of thinking about knowledge. It's like, well, you know, in some ways biology is based on chemistry is based on uh physics is based on math but math is based on biology uh because it comes out of you know abstractions from our own lived reality so these things all work together in concert and mutually inform each other um so that you can start to see that the whole kind of philosophical program of modernity the logos as it was being explored at that time was kind of fundamentally misguided in some fundamental way um 
because it was looking for foundations. And so I think that the shape of the logos today is uh, not that linear, let's get to rock bottom and then build everything on top of that. It's um, if, you know, if that's sort of a linear thing, then the shape of the logos today is more circular. It's more uh, self-informed. It's auto-poetic. It's self-regulating, you know, because um, biological systems are like this. It's not like you can get to the bottom of a biological system. It's always in, in constant relationship with its environment and defining itself in terms of energy flows and matter flows in and out. And there's flux, there's dynamism. So I would say the logos today is... It needs to incorporate these things. Otherwise, we're dealing with something very rigid. We're dealing with something very abstract and absolutistic and idealistic. We need a logos that is immanentized, that's dynamic, that's in flux, but not and, and relativized, but relativized in terms of itself, so that you get a kind of grounding in relativity. Um, and this is where, you know, then you got to get past that green postmodern contextualizing stage where you can start to get to the metasystematic and be able to put systems in system systematic contexts. So that's where that's where my logos is at. Um, <laughs> how about yours? <laughs> <laughs> sounds plausible. That sounds plausible. I'm in. <laughs> I mean, I, I not to just throw out a bunch of buzzwords and everything, but like the advances of like a fractal geometry, for example, and 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 chaos theory and complex systems, autopoesis, self-regulation, self-making, you know, all of that stuff gives a new form to reality. The loss of anti-foundationalism means we're immanentized, that things exist in reality. So that, you know, the logos is not the divine platonic ideal that gets instantiated in matter. It's you know, more like some Spinozan kind of, you know, Dios uh, Siva Natura, you know, like the the nature is the divine. It's a more panentheistic kind of conceptuality uh, to these things. And so, yeah, I mean, if the book of John were written today and, you know, uh, in the beginning was the Logos, that's the Logos that I'm thinking of as being uh, divine in that, in that form. If we don't conceive of the Logos as... A divine platonic ideal but more of a panentheistic imminence what are the consequences of that for how we conceive uh, a superlative power that we're in relationship to because one of the things that the unfolding of a mythos into a religio seems to involve is postulating for ourselves that we can have some kind of relationship to a transcendental quality, something that exceeds all of our normal experience. But there are different ways to do that, different lenses we can come at that through. Now, you pointed out that there's a kind of um, bias toward Eastern approaches that often permeates these kinds of theory spaces. There's a very cozy relationship between Buddhism and neuroscience, so to speak, mm -hmm. and a bit mm -hmm. of a standoffishness toward divine other approaches mm -hmm. and the mythologies that come with them. But in terms of what you were just saying, it makes me curious to see how you think about that. Because one way is to say, in order to get a real religio, we need to submit to or at least have a relationship to the superlative quality experienced as a higher power, as an other, something beyond or apart from the rest of conventional reality so that we can be 
divinize so that we can be activated to our fullest potential. The other way is to say, that's not somewhere else. The minute you make that move, you're off course. It has to be mm-hmm. utterly implicit. It has to be on the spot and not related to as higher or other or anything other than exactly what and where we are, in which case mm-hmm. it sounds very much like not talking about that hour at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I would say, where is the future? You know, where is the future? It does it. Well, it's not some transcendent other. It's not some supernatural category, but it's also not here and now we are moving into the future. The future is we are unfolding into the future. When we look at what happens as that occurs, we actually find that we aren't just changing into the future. We are evolving and developing into the future. One of the insights and a crucial one, I think, in in like kind of Piagetian genetic epistemology is that we don't need a transcendent sense of truth, capital T, that we are even, you know, modeling uh, perfectly or at least an increasing ability. We are, well, here, here, here's what, what we, what we, how we might conceive of that, let's say, is it's a limit that we are approaching, right? We are moving closer to it and we can't, in our current position, come to some notion about what it is uh, because it is by definition, this limit that is something we are moving towards, but we can look back and see where we were and we can mark our progression such as it has become a series of moments that do exist in the imminent world. And then we can analyze them and we can say, how has this developed? How can we say that this has developed? And Piaget's sort of answer to that was a very kind of integral sort of notion, which is that, well, our notions of truth now include the previous forms of truth. You know, all those earlier forms of truth kind of became subsets of our current notion of truth. And so our sense of truth is evolving. Now, that doesn't mean that we can predict where it will ultimately evolve to. That still lies in the future, but not in some transcendent separate way, but in a way that is becoming imminentized. We are moving towards a limit that is sort of reality is flowing towards us and we're evolving by means of that. And so one of the ways you could think about it is that whatever that abstract transcendent God concept might be is in that notion of the limit, which does in some ways lie outside of reality. I can't look around and see it right now. It's not here. It's not present. It's not the reality that we live in it is on the way, it's coming. Um, and so you could say that that notion of that transcendent absolute, which would be the, the perfect, or at least the approaching the perfect, lies there. I was talking to Bobby Azarian, and he has a very elegant argument for actually the existence of God, um, which I thought I'd sort of discarded with as being uh, ridiculous, you know, attempts of, of trying to use reason to uh, to come up with rational arguments for God. And, uh, but this one was actually rather compelling to me. And um, I think because it doesn't work as old kind of arguments for the existence of God does, but it's sort of based on Gödel's incompleteness theorem, right? Which is the notion that any kind of set of, of things will rely on axioms that aren't included in that set. You kind of need to build a set outside of it in order to justify the realities in that set, right? But then of course, now you're at this level. And so, yeah, you've done a good job of justifying that set, but now you've come up with a new set uh, and now you've got new axioms that need to be justified. And so this thing keeps building and building, which is the same model that Piaget's notion of truth is also doing, right? You're built, you're nesting things increasing of, of you're nesting truths in increasing sequential 
orders of resolution and fidelity and, and correctness, but in a relative way so that they're relative to themselves, not to some absolute, because fundamentally it's incomplete. It's going to keep going on. It's a process that keeps moving. So it's a it's a limit that we're approaching. It's not the absolute ideal perfect foundation that is set and stable and eternal and unchanging that everything rests on. It's a, it's a dynamic point outside in the future that you could say we are moving to and that that constitutes, I think, a version of the transcendent that I think can fulfill a lot of the the functions of that theological concept for us if we really take it seriously. Bobby Azarian, I think, is going to publish something on that that theorem, which he does a much better job articulating and just very briefly try to give a slightly better version of it. It's something like, you know, um, every time that you kind of, if you look at the history of kind of thinking about uh, theological claims and what would need to be the case if there were something like a God, you'll notice that every time certain things get postulated, like, well, you know, if there were a God, then you could say that there's a beginning. Um, if there were a God, you could say that, you know, thing, I don't know, you can make certain claims, right? And one of them might be that, oh, the universe had a beginning, and there, there it is. Well, of course, for a long time, we didn't think that the universe had a beginning. We, we thought it was kind of just eternal and unchanging static state or something. And then Hubble and all this, and then it's like, oh, actually, no, there's a big bang. Well, now that that has happened, uh, we don't attribute that to God. We attribute that to, oh, that was the Big Bang. So we've naturalized something. We've made it a part of reality, uh, 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 what had been a kind of claim about what would be reality if there were a God. And then this just keeps happening. So that what we keep doing is bringing into reality the what ifness of God over and over and over again, such that we keep approaching what there, you know, the reality that would be the case if there were a God, but we keep saying it's natural and there is no God. And so I like this very much because God is then that thing outside the system. He's that, you know, continual set of expanding axioms that explains reality more and more and more, but keeps getting left out of the system. God is sort of always being left out of the system, I guess you could say. And that's why, you know, you could articulate that in terms of a kind of transcendence. Um, but it's very different from the notion of a kind of platonic ideal transcendence, that there are ideal categories in some, you know, realm or something. And maybe that's not giving full due justice to, to Plato. But um, that would be my uh, angle on that. Yeah, I like I like God as the system's edge. Um, there's an interesting element of, you know, our relationship to that limit or to the organizationally necessary virtual limit of becoming the horizon, the omega, mm. is that that relationship, it seems to me, in the mystical experience, can be folded back into the structure of the present mm. implicit, mm. right? So that the relationship to God is the fine grained structure implied by non dual unity in which there is no self or other, including you or God. I think mm. that's where higher types of Sufi devotional non dualism get at. Like and that. very much, I just want to say too, I think that this also then allows us to tie in the whole notion of the mystery, right? There was a whole period in my own spiritual journey where. I wasn't an atheist anymore, but I certainly didn't know what I could say was true, but I recognized a need for a kind of sacred and a, and a religious orientation. And, and I could get behind the mystery. And when I, when I read, you know, people like uh, Rudolf Otto talking about the numinous and that incredible book, uh, the, the idea of the holy and other, uh, and the mystics too, of course, obviously the, we were talking about this right before um, we started recording, but the idea of the ineffable, you know, uh, in the mystical experience. And, um, you know, you find it in Dante, you find it in Pseudo Dionysius, it's everywhere. It's just like you get into the, the mystery. 
And I could really get behind that. I really like that. And I think that this links very well to this notion because God is fundamentally the mystery, you know, is sort of like your metaphysics of adjacency, right? Like, you know, one or 0.999 is the new one. There's a sense that like the very, the very fugitive, absent, unrealized, but constantly realizing nature of the divine is what constitutes its essence. Now, whether we can personify that and relate to that in some kind of anthropomorphic form is is an interesting question that further complicates the whole kind of Judeo-Christian mythological tradition. But um, I think that that is something that, you know, I'll sorry to keep rambling, but some people have been reading my stuff and they're like, well, where are, this is all well and good, but where's the spirit? Where's God? Where's the sacred? Right. But like, for me, this is, this is it, you know, this is the, there's something very profound and mysterious and sublime about this. And I do think that we get intimations of this when we have these sorts of either unitive experience, mystical experiences, uh, what have you, but like, this is the sort of thing I'm referring to is that God consciousness that like, it's endlessly, (sighs) You know, there's this involutionary process, I guess you could say, um, or there's this endless unfolding or infolding that's occurring, but there's this co- continual horizon, this this like event horizon of reality itself. And relating to that in its fundamental mysteriousness is what that, I think it's deeply related, let's say, to what that numinous experience is all about. And to get intimations of that at all levels of this existence in kind of a fractal way is very interesting. Yeah, I could go on and on. But but for me, this is this is a sacred thing. This is this is a spiritual thing. Um and it is, I guess you'd have to say it's metaphysical in some sense, right? Because as you say, it's not the imminent here and now. But again, is the future a metaphysical concept? Is possibility a metaphysical concept or novelty. And we didn't talk at all about all this, but like, as these things are occurring, they're not necessarily entirely mechanistic as you reach new levels of unfolding and the new axioms come online in a new enveloping system, then you might've just created a new set of rules that weren't predictable from the lower, from the lower system. In fact, a lot of the times that's what defines the emergence, right? So like, as this is going, you know, there is a, a novelty and a, uh, unpredictability about how this process unfolds. And I don't think it's wrong to equate that in various ways to the will of the divine or the, the, the personality even, you know, because it's not a machine. It's not just predictable and necessary and mechanistic, even though in retrospect, it begins to see, it begins to seem as though it couldn't have been maybe any other way, but when it's occurring, it seems, it seems, and I don't think it's, it's random either. It's not just some, you know, probability thing either. There's something novel and innovative and creative about it. And so that's a a deep uh, theological component too, that I think can be understood in in this way. As, as complex as this is, and as um, unknown as it might be in its poetic instantiation of a personhood of these forces, this description, um, it brings together the theist and atheist positions in a really interesting way. And I know mm. for some people that might be a preemptive deal breaker, but I think of those as um, teams that need to be coordinated a little bit better. You know, you mm. talk in this book about the God beyond God, 
which is a great way of simultaneously affirming the theistic experience, but also essentially affirming the atheist experience because the God, God beyond God, that's like no God. (laughs) So that's wonderful. And I think there's a lot of interesting ways to reconfigure our notion of what God is. And one of the questions I asked Adia Hanze, I think, was, you know, what, what do you say to people who think that by making God part of a changing and unfolding universe, that you're denying the essential attributes that God would have to have, which is to be already perfectly comprehensive and complete. And I think that one of the solutions to that, and we've been saying that a little bit here, is for God to be real, God would have to have the attributes of reality. Hmm. And if reality is always changing, always becoming, if if each part of reality is constituted and structured by a virtual limit, by an event horizon of itself, then for God to be real, God would also have to have that structure. So if that structure can be found, not just in abstract concepts like the future, but in abstract concepts like a particle or an event or a number, then we start to say that that's what reality is. And therefore, for God to be real, God would have to have those characteristics and not static characteristics, which would be to say that God isn't. Mm -hmm. Yes. Two things. I'll start with the first thing about the theists and the atheists, because, you know, one of the things that's become clearer and clearer to me, a bit revelatory, is how much the debate has been hitherto defined in terms of, well, I guess you could call it schismogenesis, right? This notion of of you define yourself in opposition to some other group or some other identity. Um, So you can say, oh, who are we? Well, we're not those people. So much of the debate in these around issues of religion, spirituality that have kind of been engulfing, I don't know, Western intellectual thought for the past 150 years, let's say, is based on people trying to not be the other team. Um, So atheists really don't want to affirm any notion of a simplistic, you know, kind of theological figure, man in the sky, blah, blah, blah. And they're they're also very adamant to try to defend what they have claimed or what they have, what they have come up with, what, 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 what what they've engendered through all of their hard you know, rational, empirical work, things like evolution, right? It's like, oh, oh no, here come the theists. They're going to try to kick evolution out of the schools. They're going to try to, you know, make a theocracy. They're going to do this and that. We need to put our feet, dig it in the sand and say, no, 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 none of this religious hogwash, you know, and in order to do that, in order to defend their own turf, they keep having to say things like, well, no, there is no God. Life is meaningless. Everything is just sorrow and indifferent, cold universe, blah, blah, blah. And they wind up going so far in the other direction because they're, they need to define themselves in terms of not being those crazy Christians who want to Bible thump everyone and, you know, like, uh, you know, cancel education and the sciences and everything. And the casualty in all that is any kind of reason, deep theological discourse, because then, of course, as also happens sociologically, people get polarized into one of these camps, and then it's like, all right, and then it and then it becomes, well, what values do I affirm over other values, blah, 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 it becomes a whole mess. And it's been shocking to realize how much that dynamic shapes people's conceptions of the whole theological conversation. So that, for example, you know, Bobby Azarian's book came out, The Romance of Reality, and the blurb on the cover is from Michael Shermer, 
you know, uh, the, the, the skeptic, the official kind of skeptic, the, the, the traditional voice for like dogmatic reductionist atheistic, you know, that kind of like new atheistic, uh, we're going to attack anything that even smells of a whiff of anything spiritual. Right. And here he is giving a big thumbs up to this book about cosmic purpose and teleology and, you know, emergent nested stacks that lead to, you know, agency and will towards something like an Omega point, and all this stuff. He's like, yeah, that sounds great, man. And it's like, wow, wait a second. It's not that you were, let's say anti, it's not that you were atheistic per se, because theos, another one of those os words could mean so many things. You were atheistic in the sense that you attacked and really didn't like a particular conception of the theos. One that most many people would probably be keen to admit is a simplistic childlike notion of a bearded man in the sky who causes miracles to happen, right? But once you get past this kind of semantic, you know, issue, then you can start affirming these things. So I think that the marriage of theists and atheists would be a very welcome thing uh, because it could start to reveal a lot of the the nature of the uh, theological debate uh, as it's been going so far. And we could actually see, well, wait, maybe we're not actually arguing with each other. And if you can get convergence at that level, you know, uh, if, if, if meta-modernists could be bringing in people from Michael Shermer's atheist camp and also from, you know, more kind of traditional religious camps who are keen to see life as meaningful and full of purpose, then like we're really starting to get somewhere in terms of, you know, reframing the debate and reconceptualizing uh, the issues of religion and purpose. So there's that. Yeah, I feel like as far as the issue of the unchanging, immutable notion of God, I thought, you know, Adi Hanzi, I think, did an okay job answering that one. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about sort of fills in some of that as well. Because I think that, you know, without having our cake and eating it too, we can say it's a kind of both and. If you're permitting some sense that there is this notion of the divine that somehow lies outside of current imminent reality, uh, but is in some ways a kind of, well, causal factor, I don't know, that might be a bit dangerous, but is in some ways the, the abstraction of the thing that we are moving towards that is also the very nature of the expanding set of reality and truth, you're starting to describe something, I think, very godlike in that kind of traditional platonic idealistic way. And so I'd love to see people explore that avenue, that possibility. I think we're not, no one's immune to schismogenesis, right? So a lot of my own work, I think, is in some ways defined by trying to articulate my own sense that is not where I've been and so maybe I don't take in as much of where I have been as I should, because I'm still defining myself in opposition to it. But, you know, as things become clearer and we make progress on these sorts of ideas and people's own individual biases can begin to break down, people can start to make those connections. And so it could be that some really fascinating hybrid synth- synthesis could occur between this form of, you know, Omega concept God and a kind of more Aquinas-like notion or, a, you know, even a Platinian or a Platonic notion of the divine. It might just be there for the taking. I don't know seems like over the last couple hundred years in response to modern conditions that there have been a lot of emergent ideological movements that have attracted a lot of human engagement. 
communism, capitalism, transhumanism, psychoanalysis. What are these things? How do they stand relative to emergentism? Are they failures to uh, incarnate the new religio? Are they adding things that we need to incorporate into an emergentist framework? Uh, what are their limits? What are their utilities? What are they showing us that people need in order to have transformational large-scale movements? Yeah. I like the definition, I forget, at, at the moment who said it, that ideologies are broken religions, the broken mythological systems. I mentioned this a little bit at the outset of building the cathedral. Um, and I think that the the various isms of the past, you know, 150 years, I think that that's the right lens to view them through as, uh, as Western culture was experiencing this huge cultural shift, you know, uh, experiencing at all levels, this sort of death of God, um, I think, uh, at the very least, a transformation of the potentials for um, religious uh, inaction and belief that often led to people kind of groping around for something to fill that void at the same time you're getting industrial uh you know technological takeoff and um the and mass communications and things like this so that you could some you can you could you could begin to for the first time in human history like gather gather the mob in a kind of collective way very intentionally under you know propagandistic ideological uh terms and kind of direct them towards some end um, I think, I hope, hmm, I was going to say, I think I hope that a lot of the specific conditions that led to the totalitarianisms of the 20th century have largely been those illusion. We've been become disillusioned of, of that in a, in a way that I think would be hard to do it in the same way. Of course, obviously we're seeing versions of that rear its head again. Um, and I think that if it does get to if it does reemerge, it will emerge through the new techno technological apparatus, right? So it'll be occurring through social media and this sort of thing. And we're seeing that. So, you know, it's like, it's a constant whack-a-mole. It's like, oh yeah, we won't go back to totalitarianism never again, right? Because, oh, now we see how mass media works. It's like, oh, well, we don't really know how social media works. We don't really know how, you know, this new technocratic uh, infrastructure really plays out. And so, so there's danger there. Um but more to the heart of the question, what are they? Yeah, I think that they they were attempts to evolve a new religio in, in a manner that did seem naturalistic. I mean, certainly communism, I think, can be interpreted as that. And, and I think that one of the one of the key elements to I think to what allows us to do the sorts of things that we're doing now in a metamodern context is the self-awareness. So, you know, the whole postmodern backlash to the modern utopianism was in large part because of the totalitarianisms that destroyed everything. And people got cynical and disillusioned with, you know, grand narratives and, and grand utopian projects because <laughs> Europe was in rubble and, you know, millions of people had been butchered. Um, so good reason to become disillusioned, but when you can have that, that distance that allows you to maintain awareness and even a certain skepticism of what's going on while at the same time, reclaiming some of that aspirational idealistic sensibility, such as the modernists had, you're in 
the best position you probably could be to engage in the kinds of projects that would do the sorts of things that we're trying to do, right? There will always be fraudsters. There will always be con men. There will always be, um, uh, you know, false prophets. So we need to be on our guard against that sort of thing. But if someone out of the gate is saying, hey, I'm a prophet, but I'm an ironic prophet. I'm a, I'm a puppet, you know, then, then it's all right there. It's on the face of it. And actually, I appreciate this question because it does allow me to reframe and defend a little bit uh, from some of the pushback that some people have expressed of the apparent cynicism, the apparent kind of uh, privileged irony of of allowing yourself the distance of, you know, oh, uh, we're going to talk about religion stuff, but we're going to do it with a puppet or we're going to do it with whatever, some made up character, an Adia Hanzi. People feel like, oh, you're hiding or you're you're protecting yourself or you're doing something like that, right? Um, and I get why people would, would view it that way. But again, if you don't want to have people manipulating you, if you don't want to have people taking advantage and redoing all the forms of spiritual abuse and, uh, and, and gaslighting and yeah, just religious manipulation that's been endemic to these sorts of um, projects, uh, then you're going to need a really healthy self-awareness. You're going to need a really healthy uh, remove to be able to stand back, not take yourself too seriously. And uh, and I think that we, we're, we're exploring avenues to do that. You know, um, Adi Hanzi as a puppet is one ex- experiment in that vein. Um, my pseudonyms are other attempts. Um, of course, you know, Daniel Gortz uh, and Emil working with Hanzi as a persona, I think that it does something similar. There's a there's a way that, you know, it's not just, oh, we want to be cool postmodernists too and and get our irony in so that we can kind of, you know, be everything for all men. It's that these are actually techniques and stratagems that serve a purpose to try to preserve and protect people's autonomy um, and to respect people's people to respect people as thinking autonomous agents who shouldn't just be uh, swallowed up by something and should be aware, hyper aware even of all the potential pitfalls and to be aware that the person talking to them is aware of all the potential pitfalls. So yeah, ideologies are dangerous. False religions are dangerous. The best uh, guard against a, uh, a fake religion is saying out at the outset that you're inventing a fake religion. Do you want to join? You know, um, I think that's important. Well, that brings us back to the the big picture framing and ethos of the whole book. So maybe that circle presents a good place to jump off. Um, how do you feel about the discussion? You think you got to uh, say things you wanted to say? Or are you are you happy with what you've been able to explicate about the book today? Yeah, that was great. I really appreciated that. I guess I don't really have. I mean, you know. Layman, when you and I get together, we could talk and talk. Uh, so there's always more to be said. Um, but yeah, I appreciate this opportunity to to be able to just speak a little bit more uh, freely uh, and candidly about um, these ideas. And uh, yeah, that was a great discussion. Terrific. Thank you very much. 